Welcome back to the Chartwell Chronicles. I'm Colin Davis. And just a reminder that Chartwell Law is at more than just New Jersey workers' compensation. We uh, have a multitude of different practice areas in different jurisdictions in the country. And on today's episode, I'm going to answer a few questions you frequently asked and touch on a few topics that we've recently been seeing. As a reminder, if you have any questions for myself or Brittany, please feel free to email us at podcast at chartwelllaw.com. And uh, that brings us to our first topic today, where we're going to talk about judges talking about sanctions and penalties. And this comes about when um, petitioners will file a motion, they'll be successful in their motion, the judge will enter an order. That order will state temporary disability is owed, some type of treatment is owed, uh, and maybe something else. Then time will go by, it won't be authorized. Council will file a motion to enforce. Then it still won't be authorized, and it 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 becomes a, a a problem for the judge where he's ordered something already, signed a motion to enforce, and it's still not being done. And the judges are starting to get a little ornery about uh, about this. At least I I'm starting to see, uh, and they are talking about hitting hitting on sanctions and penalties. Now, this is something you can easily prevent. The easiest way to prevent it is make sure treatment is authorized, temp is paid when it's due. Uh, you're not uh, disregarding judges' orders. Um, it's it's it is pretty simple, but I, obviously I understand, and the, the judges do understand. There might be delay in scheduling. Uh, sometimes councils will make the argument that oh, petitioner hasn't been paid, even though we've had an order for 30 plus days or 60 days, it's been since the order was entered. And then we'll be able to show, look, here's the address petitioner gave us. We've been paying the temp out, the checks are uncashed. So we're still in compliance with the order. You just haven't updated us on the address. So those are things when the judges start talking about sanction and penalties, we can use in our argument to say, hey, look, we've, we've been paying it out. We've been trying to get this scheduled. That's where the judge will say, OK, I understand. I'm not hitting you on it. What I'm referring to, though, specifically is when the judge's orders, like if you're three and four orders deep and unfortunately the carrier for some reason hasn't authorized uh, treatment, that's when you'll see the judges start uh, getting a little frustrated and that fall, that whole uh, area falls under the uh, uh, the New Jersey statute thirty four colon fifteen dash twenty eight point two in the powers of judges of compensation, and now the sanctions and penalties aren't overly uh, massive, but it it is a way the judge can essentially regain control because typically if the judge is issuing sanctions and penalties. This is, an, this is a case or something where the judge feels, the easiest way to say it is disrespected. And we don't want that to happen. But essentially, the statute says that if an employer, insurer, claimant, or counsel to the employer, insurer, and claimant fails to comply with any order of a judge of compensation or within the requirements of any statute or regulation regarding comp, a judge may, in addition to any other remedies provided by the law, impose the following. Impose costs, simple interest on any money due, uh, an additional amount not to exceed 25% of the money's due for unreasonable payment delay, uh, reasonable legal fees to enforce, and 
Then the next is they can impose additional fines or penalties on the parties or counsel not to exceed $5,000 for unreasonable delay with the proceeds of the penalties paid into the second injury fund. Another is they could uh, close off um, defenses or just dismiss the claim if it's if it's a uh, if the petitioner is the one violating, then we have the simple way to do motion to dismiss. But the judges could also suppress a defense as well. They can exclude evidence or witnesses, and they could hold uh, contempt hearings. I have seen the first set of um, all of the first ones, the, the actual monetary fees, the suppressing a defense and excluding uh, excluding witnesses. But I have never seen a judge hold a uh contempt here uh, contempt hearing uh in comp that would be while it would be terrible for our clients it'd be it'd be kind of fun to see because it'd be a uh, kind of like superior court in a way but these these are matters that judges don't often use but when they do it's because something went really wrong in the case now like i said it, it you're not going to see a petitioner or a, a petitioner hit with fines or sanctions or penalties because the simplest solution for us is a motion to dismiss. However, you may see, I, I, I've never seen petitioners counsel hit with uh, sanctions or penalties, but I, I can think of a couple examples where it would be the case where honestly you're getting um, your treatment, everything is authorized that's being paid yet counsel still just frivolously filing motions or uh, you've asked for records to get a need for treatment evaluation and months have gone by or you're alleging they're alleging that they have this uh, record that says treatment is owed but won't produce it. That might be a case. But again, I've never seen it happen on the petitioner side. I have seen judges hit respondents for the uh, simple interest, which is simple interest essentially from the day the if, if I understand it correctly, if I remember correctly, I should say from the day the order is entered. So like I said, it's, it's a minor um, monetary number, but in reality, it's a big deal because the judges are imposing sanctions. It's likely that we had mentioned judges um, will be willing to work with you on motion fees, and it'll be anywhere between 10% and 20%. Uh, typically, the judges are less than 20% if it's not litigated. Well, you could have a non-litigated motion that has four and five orders on it, and the judges will just say, hey, you know, I might not hit you with sanctions, but I'm going to hit you with the full 20%. And that's where it can be uh, a, a big a big number, a big, a big hit. While it's not actually a true sanction or a penalty, the judges are angry and they're willing to bump up their bump up their uh, fee numbers to the highest possible thing and not give you the benefit of the doubt for coming to an agreement because they have been uh, entirely frustrated by the process. And now this isn't something that happens a lot. Um, at, uh, honestly, I think I've had it happen to me twice in uh, my sev seven or eight years. I've seen it on both the petitioner side and the uh, respondent side, but it is, it is a way the judge not saying the judges ever don't have control, but it's really when the judge is bringing the hammer down and you, you don't want to get in that situation. So the quick, the easy, like I said, the easiest way to prevent this is just abide by all the decisions. But if a judge starts, uh, if you hear us telling you that a judge is talking about potential sanctions and penalties down the line, 
or coming soon, I would comply as soon as possible because the quicker you can come back into compliance, the easier it is to say that there is no uh, no reason for the sanctions and penalties. Now, another topic uh, I've seen recently is providing transportation. Now, I, I know we've discussed this in the past, but uh, a case of mine brought up a, an area I don't think we talked about. And the only way I can uh, describe this uh, that is probably easiest is formal versus informal uh, transportation. And the way I would personally describe this is formal transportation would be the carrier using a uh, an actual transportation company. Uh, the driver, they, they contract with them, the driver goes, picks up, drives to and from. What I refer to as informal is uh, Uber and Lyft. Now I have seen this in a case where the carrier uh, will will tell them to call an Uber or Lyft and reimburse, or in the alternative, petitioner will use Uber or Lyft to go to their appointments and then try at the end of the case to argue that they're entitled to reimbursement for that uh, ride. Now, if I've seen judges land on this both ways, if it's a single Uber ride, I, they're not going to, they're not going to, uh, jump on us to cover it, but if it's if it's a pattern or it's the only mode of transportation and the and the fees are adding up, council might have a strong argument. Now the the injury does play a part in this. I think it, in at least um, it should at least in my argument it will. The transportation is doesn't need to just because we're providing transportation, we do not need a medical note that says. Uh, petitioner cannot drive, cannot operate heavy machinery. Now you will get some of that sometimes because, like I said, we have we have people in construction. You'll you'll have a head injury where they they have an eye issue where they're not allowed to drive. That one obviously provide transportation. That's easy. There's other cases where you you would provide transportation where they're not injured to the extent they can't drive themselves. Maybe uh maybe you want to use a very specific doctor, but the uh, Exam is a bit further away and counsel's kind of objecting. You can make the uh, argument to say, hey, we'll, we'll provide transportation because we really want to use this doctor. And if you really want to use the doctor, there's got to be a specific reason for it, uh, such as um, they are better than the doctors in the area. We've used multiple doctors in this area, but uh, we want to ship them out to a second opinion with one of the doctors we say use in North Jersey, but it's a South Jersey case or vice versa. That's where that's where you would get into saying, hey, let's use transportation. Another is petitioners missing exams on their own, and we want to be able to have a strong argument saying, look, not only is petitioner missing their exams, we've provided transportation and they're still missing their exams. Now, I bring I bring this topic into light because, like I said, I had a case the other day where counsel called me and said, "Hey, uh, petitioner took an Uber because you said it was supposed to be at X location, and uh, the doctor's office said it was at another, so I did it. they had to go Uber twice." I said, "Okay, we can argue this out at the end of the case. Um, it's not it shouldn't happen again with the misscheduling of exams, but it it made me think about this. So yeah, Uber and Lyft they're absolutely going to be cheaper than." the formal uh, transportation companies. I don't have the exact price difference, but anybody who's ridden an Uber or uh, Lyft can tell you, hey, it, I mean, it, 
costs it costs me a hundred bucks to go to the airport now. It, it used to cost me twenty five bucks, but hey, it I still can guarantee you that's way cheaper than the formal uh, transportation. So it's a it's a double edged sword. You want to say, okay, we're not going to give you formal transportation, but we're going to let you do Uber and Lyft. Um, then you're at the mercy, at, at least, of petitioners. Uh, provide the, I mean, we're not going to just take their word for it. They'd have to provide receipts, but it's an area that's a, it's a little wishy-washy, but I have seen judges call it and say, Hey, pay for this because it was the only way they were going to get to the, uh, the appointment. Now financial hardship of the petitioner will definitely come into uh, play, um, car issues sometimes, but this is, it's 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 a newer phenomenon. I shouldn't say it's a newer phenomenon. Uber's been around for a while, but I see it from time to time where it pops up that uh, petitioners want to use Uber uh, versus driving themselves. And now another thing about transportation is, we you, you can cut it if you provide it. You can cut it, but there needs to be a definitive reason why you're cutting it. Because, like I said, we're we're offering transportation for a certain reason helping petitioner either they're they're they need to be transported because it's severe enough that that we're we're willing to to do it but in other cases we've just sometimes we'll get a case into our office where i'll get a thing saying hey we're already providing transportation and i'll question and say hey why why and it usually comes back oh we just offered it from the beginning so let's keep going Usually you can stop it, but there's got to be a, a legitimate reason. Either petitioner is not, not attending the exam still and uh, transportation is provided. Uh, maybe you can make a medical argument saying, look, it, it, there's nothing preventing them from driving. Maybe even get the doctor to make a quick comment and say, hey, let's, uh, let's make a comment on driving just so we can get out of this. But you're a uh, you're you're going to be hard pressed to cut transportation once you start it is the easy biggest thing. So I don't recommend just offering it, but at the same time I understand the necessity for it. But in my opinion as well, uh, you I I would I would rather it, I know it costs more and it, it it is a cost benefit analysis. But using the formal transportation is a much stronger argument we as well with the judge because if we use formal transportation and petitioner doesn't show up or says the car tells the car to leave whatever that's going to be then documented by that driver specifically it's going to come back they're going to tell their supervisor and we're going to get a a little bit more than a no-show notice we're going to get a no-show notice and probably some explanation of what happened like oh petitioner refused to get in the car or uh, just an example I have petitioner uh, brought a baby, but no car seat. So they, the transportation wouldn't take them. That is uh, that, that is beneficial to us. Cause then we can say, look, judge, there's no compliance here. If we're letting petitioner use Uber, they're on their own. I mean, we're relying on petitioner or petitioner's counsel to have control over this. Now, obviously I'm not saying they're going to send bills that are uh, outrageous or anything like that. But you're going to say, oh, I called an Uber for my 10 a.m. appointment, but it never showed up. Well, we're not going to be able to dock. We have no proof of that. We have no proof that the Uber didn't show up. We have no proof 
that they even called the Uber. Like we're we're not going to be entitled to anything like that. So that's the risk you run with getting an Uber. Now that's why I say you could make an exception for it at the end where petitioners argument is, look, hey, I used all this. Can you reimburse me for it? Because it's Uber, it's not going to be as expensive. You might just say, hey, we will take it because they put up legitimate reasons. Other times, it's the judge, judge, will, uh, judge will just knock it, knock it aside, and it'll just be an eaten cost by a petitioner because there was no formal reason behind it. Another area I have seen um, pop up with a little confusion is multi co multi respondent occupational claims now a lot of the times with these they settle section 20 globally meaning uh all the parties contribute some monetary number to buy out of the claim usually one party pays a much higher sum than the other and we buy out typically because of the amount of exposure that one carrier had versus the other now, the area I want to talk about is, yes, we, we definitely file motions to dismisses on these pretty quick, pretty quickly um, because usually they're long periods of time. Maybe our exposure period is only um, a couple weeks, couple months. I mean, I have cases on these where we have eight days of exposure up to 10 years of exposure. So th they, they, they differ. If we're in a 10-year of exposure – we might be the one getting hit at the end if they can show it. On the eight days of exposure, no no way the judge is hitting us for that. We're probably getting dismissed. But what I wanted to bring up about this is when it's a multi-respondent case, even if we know we're going to get dismissed at the end because we're, we're a, a finite number of days, uh, like I mentioned, possibly eight, we're in it for the long run, unfortunately. We the judges will not let us out early. Counsel will not let us out early because God forbid something comes up in the future where we're already dismissed. Uh, then the judge can't. The judge isn't going to be able to bring us back in. Petitioner has no recourse. So the judges, they full well will tell us, look, we know you're getting out, but we're we're going to keep you on for as long as the case is alive. And I know that's very frustrating for a lot of carriers. And it's also frustrating for uh, us as attorneys as well, because we know we're getting out. And as we've mentioned in the past, these occupational cases drag on for a long time because you're collecting years and years of records. You are, you're, you're just doing a lot uh, of monotonous, uh, shot in the dark hoping to get treating records because you're again relying on petitioner who treated unauthorized and all of a sudden met with an attorney and goes hey it's could be related so let's throw let's throw a some pie at the wall that's the easiest way to say it because well that's kind of what petitioner attorneys do in most of the cases but yeah i, I just really that's a that's one that is big where oh, trust me we're just as frustrated as you that we know we're allowed out we know we're gonna be out but the judges will make us go along so something that should be very simple unfortunately it will be drug along so even though we're at we should be out today you could have this case a year from now unfortunately and and, and i fully understand the frustration because there's no reason for us to be in but that's just the way it works in new jersey with these multi-respondent occupationals
another uh, thing that's not allowed in New Jersey, and I know we've touched on this, and I just want to remind everybody that the uh, CNR uh, releases are uh, not allowed in New Jersey, which is the uh, resignation and uh, release, which is the resignation and releases where you uh, tie a uh, tie a settlement to a resignation. No judge in New Jersey is going to approve that. I've never seen it happen. Uh, just a reminder to everyone, that is one area that is not changing anytime soon that I'm aware of. I don't see I – love, I love them. I wish New Jersey had them. But unfortunately, we cannot tie a resignation to, uh, to a settlement. If petitioner decides to resign on their own, totally unrelated. It's just like if you fire somebody for being an at-will employee – as long as it's for related reasons unrelated to comp, you should be good. But as we mentioned in the past, contact an employment lawyer in that situation. Another uh, another one I, I do love talking about is voluntary tenders. And I think when I was a petitioner attorney years ago, I kind of never made the argument that I I, I I see or would make now today. I think it was just because I was I was younger. I didn't see the benefits of them like I do from the respondent side. Voluntary tenders can be beneficial. Um, they can help you out in a lot of ways. So say counsel is arguing that temp is owed. Uh, we uh, don't technically have a doctor's report stating that uh, temp is not owed, but we, there's a strong... Um, strong likelihood based on the evidence counsel's provided that when we do get our need for treatment, doctor will say either full return, MMI, whatever reasons to not pay temp uh, going forward, you could pay a VT and these can be converted down the line into a credit somewhere, either credit for temp, credit at credit at perm. It just, it, it kind of gets around gets you around a lot of things. It gets you around the judge getting on you for uh, a motion pending and saying, Hey, look, uh, I'm going to hit you with temp, maybe either issue temp or a VT. The judges just want the money issued. They don't necessarily care how you do it. So if, if there are certain examples where a VT would be, uh, necessary or the better look over a, uh, temp temp, obviously if a authorized doctor puts the petitioner out, Pay the temp. You're, you're not going to get away with a VT there. The VTs, like I said, if it's a denied case, if it's an initially denied case, but there's pretty good proof from the ER records that it's a work-related accident, we just don't have a doctor, things like that. Or it's a – sometimes you see these in occupational cases where we denied it, but the judge says, hey, I'm going to hit you for temp, but – the temp owed is um is could be much more than the VT. If you come up with a reasonable number, counsel is going to agree to that. And a lot of the times, uh, petitioners' counsels will even suggest them in some cases. Like sometimes they'll say it at the end after petitioners MMI, they know they have financial issues, and be like, "Look, we know this case is going to settle for say forty percent of partial total." They'll say, "Hey, can you do an initial VT of say ten percent part, ten percent partial total, and we'll just credit that monetary number at the end when we pay out the settlement?" And I don't always, uh, I didn't always jump at that uh, in the past, but it, it's never, it's not necessarily a bad thing as long as you're getting counsel to admit you're getting the credit. Uh, it, it's not as um, 
bothersome to me as it is it used to be obviously this is a case-by-case basis i'm kind of making a big uh general general statement about this now obviously i I, like i said vts i probably they're on the same level as like i mentioned earlier the sanctions and penalties you hear you hear about it you question it half the time the case is ending before it so they're 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 things that can help there are tools that can help you because re- in reality, the judge is more concerned that you are paying. They don't necessarily care sometimes how you pay as long as you're getting out. And same with petitioner. They don't care if the verbiage is uh, temporary disability versus voluntary tender. Uh, those type of things, they're they're easy. They're, they're semantics when it comes to uh, – the case in reality but the biggest thing is they can they can they can be a benefit they can get the judge off your back you can avoid a motion with it and motion i mean i feel like everything's back to normal now uh comp wise post covid i know we're still mostly or still mostly virtual some of us appear in person it's more respondents that appear in person uh judges are still virtual. They, uh, they are allowed to work from home two days a week, but I'm noticing when it comes to trials now, all of my judges would like you in person, unless you have a legitimate reason because, and then the argument I see that is, well, Hey, Hey, petitioner's counsel make, Hey, let's, let's do the testimony virtually. And if you have a, anything else, I'll, I'll have him come in in person. And, my position is that the more in person for trial, the better, because certain injuries you just cannot see. I mean, it, obviously, this is not a this is not a video, but as anybody that's done a Zoom, you see neck and above. I mean, if I have an injury neck and below and I'm sitting, how how can you tell how it's effect, impacting me? I mean, I could be sitting on a couch, a chair in the most comfortable position for my testimony. You wouldn't have any idea if it's a bad day. I could tell you it's a bad day. But in reality, I want the judge to see that person walking in. If they tell me they can't walk without assistance, I want you to see that. I want everybody in the courtroom to see it. If you tell me you can't lift something for a certain weight, but I saw you walk in with a book bag, I'm going to say, hey, how much do you think that book bag weighs? Things like that. Those are the benefits of in the, the in-person trial. And I, I'm actually a big proponent of the way uh, courts are courts are going right now. I, I love the hybrid option. I love the ability to go in while simultaneously being able to do it virtually because there there's, it's, it's double edged. Like if you, if you certain things you, you don't need necessarily need it. it it's great. Uh, the downside is that the judges uh, will give you a lot of calls um, randomly and be like, Hey, can you pop on? As opposed to in the past, you'd have to wait till you were in court and they'd have you come come in and 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 be available. But the the best thing, and I know the carriers do love this, and it's something I love too. In the past, getting an add-on settlement was difficult. You would have to have both. The judge the judges who were pretty much always willing, they were never the issue. It was usually respondent attorney or uh, petitioner attorney. Now, petitioner attorneys not always. Um, usually, they're in the same couple venues. Uh, it's the respondent attorneys that bounce around. You'd have to line up those days with petitioner. But now we're allowed. To, we're still allowed to use settlements by affidavit. So counsel can get that affidavit signed, get the order signed, call me up and say, "Hey, can you do this today?" I'll say no. In the past, it probably would have taken till my next cycle. 
But I can be like, hey, I can't do it today. But tomorrow at if you can get the judge to agree to it, which 99.9% of the time, unless they're out for some unrelated reason, they're going to let it through. You can get these add-ons and it's it's wonderful. I, I love it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm still putting away cases 10 times quicker than uh, I was um, pre-COVID, which, which, is, which is a great use of the technology. I think the judges, um, they're doing well. I, I'm not sure where the division's going to go. I, I, I personally think it's probably going to stay the same. I think it's working well. While I may have my own personal complaints because I, I, I kind of like the in-person court. I think it gives you a little more accountability. Uh, it, it's, it's not to the level where it was two years ago where you just had people not showing up on zoom because they did. There's, there is the, the accountability because the judges are starting to push through those motions to dismiss, which they weren't um, during COVID. So, so we're very thankful to all of you for listening. Um, if you have any topic ideas, feel free to reach out. I really want to thank our behind the scenes man, Eric, who is with us every time. He does a great job. He puts all the puts all this together, does the editing, the sound effects. So uh, thank you, Eric. And uh, thank you all for listening to this episode of Chartwell Chronicles. Please subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, please join us next time for the Chartwell Chronicles.